Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. If I'm reading my calendar correctly, the sound of my voice should be on its way to you on the 12th day of August, which means in six days, the Hugo Awards will be announced and we'll see what comes of it. As someone who works in IT, you can imagine that I have quite a few people in my social network who know what the Hugo Awards are and are important to them. So they've been reminding me constantly that they're coming up and they may know a Hugo Award recipient personally. The entire district is pulling for tales to terrify and the upcoming award. You may remember that the things I had to say about the situation under which we were nominated the award, and I think that most of that still holds true. Despite the conditions that brought us to be finalists for a Hugo Award, I do want to see Philip and Scott recognized for their work, and all of the editors that preceded them, all of the contributed authors and narrators, and... Of course, our founder who paved the way for all of this, Larry. And you've already heard my thoughts on those who are trying to achieve correct goals but through incorrect means by debasing the Hugo Awards. Here on Tales to Terrify, all authors are welcome to submit their stories regardless of personal political view, and I hope that the rest of the arena of science fiction, fantasy, and us strange ones in horror are as open to the works of all authors, even if finding their personal opinions disagreeable. This place is one of both amateurs and professionals, but this place is special for all. A home away from home and a refuge, albeit a temporary one, from the difficulties or tediums of reality. All should be welcome. But let's move on to our fiction. Mark Howard Jones lives in Cardiff, the capital of Wales. His novella, The Garden of Doubt on the Island of Shadows, drew praise from Ray Bradbury, among others. His collections, Songs from Spider Street, is currently available. You can find him most days at the Spider Street sanatorium at spiderstreet.weebly.com. Link will be in the show notes. And now we will hear Mark Howard Jones' Old Slotten. It had been nearly an hour's dusty drive from Rackness along a terrible road, and Pete was starting to get annoyed. He was about to embark on a swearing fit when Joanne finally said, 
"'That must be it,' and pointed through the open car window. Squinting through the dust, Pete saw a line of old buildings jammed between the grey-green of the land and the light blue of the sky. "'About bloody time, too!' "'I did say it'd be a very long drive,' said Joanne defensively. Pete gritted his teeth. "'Yes, but I didn't know I'd be driving along a donkey-track.' Finally the road was getting somewhere, he thought, as he pulled around the last curve and saw a small hump-backed bridge ahead. There hadn't been a single signpost along the way. As they came over the top of the bridge, he saw that the road into the village was mainly dirt and old cobblestones. He pulled over to one side and parked on the grassy verge. He switched off the engine and looked Joanne's unspoken question straight in the face. "'I am not driving over that lot. Not unless you fancy walking back to the hotel because our suspension is knackered.' She gave him a sour look, opened the door and stepped out. The breeze was cool in her face after the hot journey. In the moments when the breeze slackened, the sun felt hot on her face. "'Well, here we are, then,' sighed Pete. "'Old Slaughton.' Joanne ducked her head back inside the car. "'It's pronounced Slodden. I asked the woman at the hotel.' Pete tapped on the steering wheel in irritation. "'And what have we come here to see? Remind me.' Planting herself back on the seat beside him, Joanne jabbed him in the ribs. "'Nothing in particular. It's just that Uncle Simon said he was here in the seventies, and that it was really lovely, that's all.' Pete squirmed away from her sharp fingers. Ow! Oh, Simon, right. I'm surprised he can even remember anything of the seventies. Joanne jabbed him even harder. Don't be horrible. She stood up again. Come on, then. Let's look around. Pete climbed out from behind the wheel and locked the car. The main street was a carpet of grass and wild flowers, untrodden for years. Its only inhabitants appeared to be a small army of bees, hard at work on the flowers, unbothered by the midday heat. The village seemed to be just three sheets that followed the bend of the narrow river, with a cross street connecting them all. Most of the houses had wooden shutters on the outside of the windows, tightly shut even after all these years, in defiance of rot and mildew. One or two houses that weren't shuttered still had glass in the windows, but their filthy state defied even Pete's most inquisitive efforts to see inside. "'It's like the Marie Celeste,' he said. "'That's Marie Celeste,' corrected Joanne. Pete looked disgruntled. "'Well, I thought it was Marie. Anyway, the place is dead, however you pronounce it. It looks like your uncle was the last one to visit here.' Joanne laughed. "'Yes, it is an abandoned village. What did you expect?' He stuck his tongue out at her. "'Actually,' For somewhere that's been empty for so long, it's in pretty good condition. I'd have expected it to be much more of a ruin. You know, weather-beaten, mostly collapsed. No pubs or shops, have you noticed? Not one. I wonder how they managed, he added. Joanne nodded. Yes, but they did have a church. She pointed to a dark spire poking above the roofs. Oh, hooray! Good for them. Holy spirits instead of real ones, he snorted. So what's the big mystery about this place, anyway? I mean, why is it empty now? Joanne shrugged. The guidebook doesn't say much, really. The village was abandoned in the 1920s. It doesn't give a reason or anything. I suppose it is quite cut off here. Pete looked puzzled. Probably because there were no pubs. Strange time to abandon it, though. I mean, cars and buses were in common use by then. It seems odd they would just pack up and leave, even if it was cut off. I expect there was a good economical reason, said Joanne, falling back on her accountancy training as usual. Pete shot his eyes heavenwards. Yeah, I thought you'd say that. But why build a village here in the first place? I mean, there are no farms around here for miles. It's just salt marsh. I don't know. The guidebook doesn't say, shrugged Joanne, waving the pointless term at him before stuffing it back in her bag. Maybe it's one of those model villages that guilt-ridden nineteenth-century philanthropists used to build. Pete nodded. Or maybe it's a leper colony. All the way out here, away from clean, healthy folk. Joanne chuckled at the idea, and they set off to walk the length of the village. 
Joanne passed the corner house with a name carved above the door in simple, clean letters. It said Provender Cottage. Well, that explains why there are no shops. They got all their goods here, she said, tugging at Pete's sleeve and pointing. She looked at the elaborate upper stories of some of the houses, surprised to see them in such a small village. I've never seen houses like these in country before. They look sort of Dutch. Well, this part of the country does point at Holland, he said, using exaggerated hand gestures to indicate what he imagined was the most direct route to the Netherlands, as the crow flew. They came to another bridge over the river, and Joanne looked down into the slow-moving water. Flowers had taken hold everywhere, even growing out of the masonry of the bridge, softening its lines. It's like something out of a dream. The place had even begun to soften Pete's temper. Yeah, it is quiet here. Joanne fished into her bag and pulled out a packet of sandwiches. Cheese and pickle? What one? They sat and ate while leaning against the old bridge, staring down into the water and feeling at ease with the world for once. Uncle Simon was right. It is lovely here. Yeah, it's a sort of best-kept secret type of place, isn't it? I wish I'd brought my camera, said Pete. After eating, they decided to explore what was beyond the village, heading round the bend of the river. But at the end of the street there was nothing. The last house had partly tumbled down to where the cobblestones came to a sudden end. Beyond that was just flatness that eventually fell away down towards the sea, a grey and blue band less than a mile from where they stood. The salt wind brought the smell of the sea to them. Ah, well, the end of the road. So much for the view, then. Let's get back, shall we? suggested Pete. They were about to leave when Joanne stopped and pointed. What's that? Pete turned and followed her directions. Just below a dark cloud out to sea, there were a number of dark shapes heading towards them. Birds, said Pete. They're awfully big, she said. Pete shrugged. Probably gulls. Or skewers. They're both quite big. But we can't tell how far away they are. They seem bigger than that. He didn't know why Joanne was suddenly so nervous, but he slipped his arm around her and said, Come on, let's go back to the car. She turned awkwardly with her arm wrapped around her and almost stumbled. Ow! she said, expecting at least minimal sympathy from her husband. He was silent. He stood staring, his mouth open. There was an odd expression on his face. What is it? she asked. He seemed unable to speak. She followed his gaze. Now there were four bridges across the river instead of just two, and she could see more streets between gaps in the houses. The village seemed to have doubled in size while their backs had been turned. She turned her head to the left and saw two streets running along the edge of what had been an open field just a few seconds ago. The old phrase, all done with mirrors, came into her head. But then she realised how impossible it all was, and feared that she had gone mad. Pete! There was cold panic in Joanne's voice now. Where did all these streets come from? We must... have just taken a wrong turn. The place must be bigger than we thought. He wiped his forehead on his sleeve, leaving a large, dark sweat stain. Despite his growing panic, he felt obliged to try and rationalise things, to be in control. Come on, let's head back towards the church. At least that's still where it was. We can get our bearings from there. They began to walk slowly, surely, as if uncertain of the ground below their feet. Joanne glanced over her shoulder just once. The flock of giant birds was gone, and there didn't seem to be any more streets behind them than before. She breathed a short sigh of relief. We'll be okay, said Pete, not believing his own words. There was nothing unremarkable about the streets that had recently appeared. They were just like the others in the village. But the fact that they were there at all made Pete's sweat turn cold, as if the summer had suddenly disappeared from around them. They began to walk towards the church, cautiously following the route back that they had trodden just a few minutes earlier. But the street took them away from the church instead, and led them to a small square where the low houses cut them off. Joanne looked around quickly, a small, Oh no! escaped her lips. Peter turned to go back the way they'd come, but stepped back in shock as he saw there were now three streets that led into the square. 
Sure that she had seen someone move behind an upstairs window, Joanne gripped his arm tightly. The old phrase about mirrors popped back into her head, and a lost, childish part of her prayed this was all just an illusion. She longed to rush forward, arms outstretched, and push over the mirror, shattering it into shards, revealing reality hidden behind it. "'Oh, God! Where do we go now?' she whispered. "'Follow me,' muttered Pete. He was determined to reach the church, even though that wasn't anywhere near where they had left the car. But if they could get inside, he thought, maybe they would have a view out over the village and find the way out. Joanne followed him down the nearest street. She gasped as they passed Provender Cottage, and then, a few steps later, passed it once more. There were a dozen identical houses within mere yards of each other. The one small house had been multiplied. She was almost in tears at the thought it might happen to them too. Why had they come to this damned place? The street came to a sudden end outside the church. At last, said Pete, he began to look for a way into the building. Apart from the main door, which was locked and still sturdy despite years of neglect, there was no other way into the building. Shit! We're no better off than we were, he cursed. Joanne stroked his back in reassurance. Let's just try and find the car as quickly as possible, shall we, darling? She tried to hide her fear, but it quivered through her words. Pete nodded, and they began to head back the way they'd come. There was no street. The way they'd come had disappeared. Now there were only houses forming a small square in front of the church, with no way in or out. Oh, God! No! No! screeched Joanne. What is this place? Pete grabbed her. Hey, listen, we will get out of there, okay? We'll just break into one of the houses and get out the back way. He headed for the nearest house and began to push his shoulder against the front door. It didn't give. But a sound came from above him like an animal clambering over the roof. Pete looked up but couldn't see anything. He glanced over at Joanne, who was busy fishing in her bag for a handkerchief. She obviously hadn't heard it. Out of the corner of his eye, Pete felt sure he'd seen something cling to the top of the church spire, gripping it in a way that no bird could. He turned quickly to look at it. The stone seemed to have changed colour slightly in the afternoon light, but that was all. He didn't say anything to Joanne. Instead, he took a run at the old door, and put as much of his weight against it as he could. There was no movement, but he winced at the pain in his shoulder. More sounds came from above. Her gasp told him that Joanne had heard it this time too. Suddenly the sky over them was dark, full of things. There was no sound. They both looked up. The things were huge. Pete desperately tried to see their faces, to divine their intentions, but they were too fast. Long, long wings was all he saw, and huge grey claws. The things swooped lower and lower, at least a dozen of them. So fast and so black. Pete and Joanne looked at each other, hoping to see hope there, but seeing only ancient animal fare reflected in the other's eyes. They began to run, but there was nowhere to run. The End Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. That was Mark Howard Jones' Old Slaughten, as read by Kristen Yelov. Kristen is 29, Norwegian, and has been recording and editing for LibriVox since 2011. She is educated as a librarian and is currently working on her first novel, although she runs her own company at the moment. Her LibriVox page can be found linked in the show notes. Thank you, Kristen. Our second story for the night comes from John Everson. We heard from John last week, so this is going to be a bit of a repeat of his accolades, but where they are due, they are given. John Everson is the author of more than 100 published short stories and several novels of horror and dark fantasy. His first novel, Covenant, won the Bram Stoker Award for a first novel in 2005. His sixth novel, Nightwear, was a Bram Stoker finalist in 2013. Over the past decade, he has published eight novels, Covenant, Sacrifice, The Thirteenth, Siren, The Pumpkin Man, Nightwear, Violet Eyes, and The Family Tree. His first five novels were issued in mass market and trade paperback, by Dorchester Leisure Books. Limited hardcover editions were also issued from Delirium Books, Necro Publications, and Bad Moon Books. In 2011, Amazon's 47 North imprint licensed his leisure catalog, and his most recent novels have been released through Samhain Publishing. Covenant, Sacrifice, Siren, and Nightwear have been translated or are in the process of being translated and released in Poland, Turkey, France, and Germany. Over the past 20 years, John's short fiction has appeared in more than 50 magazines, including Space and Time, Dark Discoveries in Gru, as well as in a couple dozen anthologies, most recently in Necrophiles, Two Decades of Extreme Horror, The Green Hornet Casebook, Kolchak, The Night Stalker Casebook, Best New Werewolf Tales, Volume 1, Best New Vampire Tales, Volume 1, and Best New Zombie Tales, Volume 2, and Fell Beasts. His short stories have also been translated and published into Italian, Polish, and French. A wide selection of his short fiction has been collected in four short story collections, Sacrificing Virgins from Samhain Publishing 2015, Needles and Sins from Necro Books 2007, Vigilantes of Love from Twilight Tales 2003, and Cage of Bones and Other Deadly Obsessions from Delirium Books, 2000. Now let's give a listen to John Everson's After the Fifth Step. After the fifth step, it was mundane. Ah, but getting to the fifth step, that was the trick. That was what it was all about. The crowds below, they thought the tough part was in the center, once the safety net was removed. Oh, such danger, the ringmaster would cry. Such daring do. Such malarkey, Rain thought. Once you were moving in the groove, you didn't need a net. The difficult part was placing one step in front of the other when leaving behind the wooden platform. The first step was like a switch between stepping on sandpaper and high-gloss ice. With a slight movement, his foot left behind the immobile, grainy plywood to slip down a quivering, thin decline of twined-worn fibers. 
It was stepping through the door of a plain cargo bay to open unparachuted air. That step was the first trick, and the second, bringing your anchor with you. The hardest was the step after the first. That's where you gained or lost your balance. That's where it became a walk or a fall. After the second step, there was no going back. You didn't turn around on the high wire. The third step was a beginning. The first complete motion forward on a new course. The fourth step was an affirmation. After the fifth step, it was just walking. Rain put his first foot down on the tightrope and felt the horsehair-thin fibers catch on the lycra net of his tights. Comforting feeling that, while an unpracticed person would simply feel his foot slip down on a wavering thread of uncertainty, Rain could feel his soul wrap and grip on the tightly wound fibers of the rope. It wasn't like stepping out on air. It was solid to him, different than Earth, maybe, but solid if you were in tune. Maybe that was the best simile. Walking the tightrope was like performing a violin solo. Long, elegant strokes across thin strands of fiber. Of course, if you flubbed a note on the fiddle, you didn't end up so much dog food in front of an audience of hundreds. Usually, he thought of a spider stepping without thought across skeins and splinters of web. Tarantula sang a dirge in his mind from a long ago album by this mortal coil. That's what he tread across. This mortal coil. A skein of filigree and shadow, the web of a tarantula. He smiled and hummed. The second step fell true. He sighed, an invisible breath of success. The audience didn't know the peril of those first two steps. It was the job of the ringmaster to keep them from focusing on that, while the tightrope walker gained his composure and his rhythm. Down there, past the round, red, and yellow-painted elephant waiting to step into the second ring, that's where the microphone man made his plays. That's where the man with the handlebar mustache barked his exaggerated cries of, "Can you believe it? He is about to step out on the wire without a net beneath him. Quiet, ladies and gentlemen, this is very dangerous." That was exactly when Ryan didn't care any more. That's where the danger became safe. Sleight of hand and misdirection were the calling cards of the circus. After the first few steps, he was home free. It was the adjustment zone at the intro. That's where the tough stuff was. It was the job of the ringmaster to keep the audience focused on the center and the false bravado, where it was easy. The third step was good, and Ryan's heart slowed. Oh yes, even after all these years of walking, his heart still kicked with a mule's petulant anger when he put that first toe to wire. His mind may have been stubborn, but his body wasn't stupid. He knew that every walk could be his last. But with step four, he knew that this was just another day. His bearings found, Rind moved steadily across the rope, one foot in front of the other, each step bearing down lower on the ever so slightly sloping rope until he reached the center and the object of the ringmaster's over-exaggerated cries of excitement. Once he started that upward incline on the far side of center, over with a spot where there was no net, it was like walking up a hill. From the ground, it actually looked fairly level, but it wasn't not quite. The second half of the walk was work, but it was easy. He began to think of Melinda the night before, the way her fringed gold lame top had slipped from his fingers to the floor, a bouquet of tinsel. The way she'd shown him how a girl could really appreciate the controlled reflexes of a tightrope walker. She didn't care if his mother was the three-breasted woman of the freak show tent. She loved his surety of self. She loved his lips for their deceptive softness. He loved her eyes for their kaleidoscopic play of spark and dark and mystery. He loved her dimples for their expressive blushes. God, he hoped she didn't tell. This was a dangerous game. All of their other meetings had been during the break between their acts. They'd seen each other on the sly for weeks, but never had a night date before. When he slipped back into his tent to face Aaron after midnight, he'd had to make up an excuse about helping Raymond with a faulty rope pulley. 
She yawned and shrugged and turned away back to sleep. Did she suspect? It was one thing for a man of the circus to love a woman of the same. It was another for a man of the circus to cheat on a woman of the circus with a woman of the same. He knew it was only a matter of time before someone talked to the wrong someone else. No matter how careful he was, tongues would wag. A circus was like a family, and like any family, nothing stayed secret for very long. Erin, Rain's wife, was a ticker-taker at the front gate. She'd had no talents, but she'd loved the smell of the damp bales of hay and the heat of the popcorn in the air, the sticky promise that pink cotton candy gave, and the front gate cries of, Step right up, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Bartlett and Stanley's amazing, mysterious, phantasmagorical traveling circus. Hear the mighty trumpet of the elephants and the horns of the clowns. Taste the taffy of our apples and the caramel of our corn. Twist your body in the house of illusions. And, for the truly terrifying, visit our freak show. Come, see the frightening Mr. Lee. Come, and beware of the terrible Mrs. Jacob. That greeted the guests a dozen times a day in every town. They stepped past the ticket-ticker girls and ooed and awed at the brightly colored, massive tents and the fire-engine red signs in the shape of giant hands that pointed this way and that, noting in daisy yellow script, This way to the freak show. See the three-breasted woman. Hear the tiny voice of the midget man. And another. This way to the center ring, the sight of the show of shows. The people streamed inside the tent to see what they could never see at home. Sometimes, to breathe sighs of relief that they did not have such freakishness at home. But, mostly, to lose themselves in the strangeness and warped talent of it all. The circus was ultimately about the people who came to see it. It reflected them. And the people wanted to taste the salt of the corn and the sugar of the cotton and live the vicarious danger of a man on a tightrope and a woman in a skimpy top sticking her head inside the deadly lion's mouth. They wouldn't do it themselves, mind you. But somehow, seeing another person tread the wire or brave the teeth gave them satisfaction in their own lives. That's what Rain did. He gave satisfaction. He made life worth living for hundreds of folks every day. Erin had been one of those people once. She'd come to see him walk and hung around after the show to talk. She'd ended up in his bed. She'd asked if he minded the next morning. How could he have minded? She stayed with him through the next town, helping out as they struck the tents and pulled the pitons and rewound the ropes. She'd shown up in a God left me for another man, T-shirt, on the third day, with a backpack on her shoulder blades, and said, I hope you've got room in your bunk in Cincinnati, because that's where they were going. He'd said sure. Aside from the occasional fleas he ended up sharing it with, thanks to the lions, he'd always give up space for a girl like Erin. Cincinnati, Dayton, Cleveland, Minneapolis, Detroit, Chicago— She'd been in his bed at the end of every show, challenging him to walk a different thin rope than the one he slid across in the air. This tightrope was wrapped in a scrim of emotion, and she was weaving it as they went. He was trapped before they left Ohio. She began to earn her keep in the ticket-taker's booths. I'll not have you carry me, she said on the day that she applied for the job. It's not like she had a lot of competition. Most of the people who traveled with a circus had talents and skills to show off, or oddities. All Erin had were her looks and a lover, and free time on her hands. So she worked the booth. Rain had worked a tent. They made the circus money and moved from town to town. Until, in Piton, Illinois, Rain met a girl with dark, curly locks that stretched down to tease at the creamy cleft between her purple crop top and the low-slung faded denim of her jeans. And he slept with her in the tall grass just beyond the recently mowed parking lot. And he'd found that there was more than a wire, a ticket-taker, and a suitcase to life. At least, that's what he thought as her heavy, forceful tongue invaded his lips. 
Ryan thought he could quit the circus for Melinda, if that's what she wanted. He'd never thought that way when he met Aaron. But for now, at least, he wouldn't have to consider it. Melinda had joined Bartlett and Stanley's circus a few months before. She was the newest member of the family and was working the big tent, ushering the animals and clowns and kids on and off the floor. Her name proved she didn't know how to spell, but she knew a whole lot else. In particular, she knew what made him feel real good. He'd found that out between shows while Aaron was still out at the front gate selling $3.75 tickets. I'll come back tomorrow. Will you see me again, she asked, zipping up her jeans across bare, pale flesh at eye level with him as he lounged on her wide cot. Yes, he smiled. I'll do more than see you. Rain reached the middle of the rope walk and smiled, both at his memories of Melinda and his hearing. The barker was bragging of how this was the most dangerous fifteen feet ever attempted by man. A twenty-five-foot-high walk with no net across a deadly center floor of a big top. He could hear the audience take in a collective breath. Ooh, ah. His mind was far from the plodding steps of toe to rope. His mind was on the deep brown eyes and wide pink lips of Melinda. And on what they might do for him tomorrow. He almost didn't hear the ear-crushing applause when he stepped up on the board on the other side and turned to bow to his audience, perfunctorily, before climbing down the ladder as a lion tamer came running across the dusty dirt floor to take his place in the public's eye. His private eye had other concerns. Rain feigned sleep when Aaron came in. He couldn't face her tonight. He was a terrible liar and, truth be told, Despite his feats on the tightrope, a coward. He lay in bed with his eyes locked shut, wondering if he could convince Melinda to stay in Springfield with him. The circus could pack itself up and hit the road, and when it arrived in St. Louis, it would just be short one tightrope walker and one glitter girl. They could hitch onto another circus easily enough. He didn't really believe that last part, and he doubted Melinda would either. She'd just finally ended a job search. How many traveling bands of multi-talented gypsies were there in Middle America? And how many needed performers? He'd rolled on his side as Aaron kicked her shoes into the trunk with two muted thuds and slipped off her heavy, gold-lined red jacket, draping it over a folding chair with a hollow clang of metal beads meeting metal back. As she did every night, he heard her jewelry hit the press board of her thin shelving unit. She'd insisted on keeping one light piece of furniture in the portable home. She slipped beside him under the covers, cool silk brushing against his thigh. Rain could feel her eyes burrowing into the back of his neck. You want to talk about it? she said finally. He didn't stir. Yeah, didn't think so, she whispered. They both lay there, faces to the canvas ceiling, each knowing the other was awake, as somewhere a clock ticked through the hour. Click, stop. Click, stop. Click, stop. Click, stop. Click. When Rain woke up, Aaron was already gone. Part of him was relieved, but another was frightened. What did she know? What would she say when he finally came clean? He shook away the vision of her screaming and beating at his chest with clenched fists. He dressed quickly and went out to meet the crowds. He had a show to do. He passed his mother, a vet, the three-breasted woman, outside the freak show tent. Her arms were crossed over the object of her attraction, and she shook her head at him and tisked. Behave, was all she said, and vanished behind the flap of canvas. Great, Ryan thought. Did everyone know? The first step was harder than usual. The second was almost impossible. He couldn't focus. 
he kept hearing Aaron ask in the darkness, Do you want to talk about it? She knew. She knew, damn it. Maybe his mother did, too. Shit. Maybe the whole goddamn circus knew. But how? It hadn't been that long, and they'd been careful. Or was he just being paranoid? He could feel a change in texture of the rope beneath his foot at step three, but didn't look down. When you were on the wire, you didn't turn back, and you didn't look down. But then he felt it again. His foot seemed to slide just a bit. Rain didn't move his head, but cast his eyes down, staring at the event horizon of the long rope below him. He saw the cause of the disturbance. If he hadn't been so preoccupied with his infidelity when climbing the ladder and starting out across the rope by rope, he couldn't have missed it. Someone had wound gaudy strands of tinsel every few inches all down the length of the rope. Cute, he thought, and refocused his gaze. Irritating, but not dangerous. He was already past step five, and the rest of the way was just a walk in the park, really. He and Rafe, the tent master, would be having a long talk when he got down from this little stunt. You don't mess with a guy's tightrope to pretty it up without telling him. Down on the main floor, the ringmaster was just winding up, getting into his act. Shh, ladies and gentlemen, be very quiet now, the man in the red and white striped suit intoned, holding a finger to his lips. He's coming up on the most dangerous part, a walk of intense peril, the most dangerous fifteen feet ever attempted by man. Look as he steps out over the ground fifty feet below, without a net. Rain hardly smiled at those old familiar words. Old hat. He'd heard them too many times. He stepped, slipped a little again on tinsel, stepped again, and stepped. Shit, he hissed. Something bit into his foot. He hurriedly stepped again and almost fell. The rope felt as if it had disappeared and he was treading on razor. The thin fabric covering the soles of his feet barely shielded them from the rope, allowing him to feel the texture of the strands beneath him. And right now, all he was feeling was pain and a growing heat down the center of his feet. His arms struck out and waved for balance as his walk slowed and the crowd took in its breath with a perceptible gasp. The whole world seemed to creak to a slow-motion crawl. He stepped again, and this time he cried out. Again, the pain was growing, but Rain could not go back. He could not stop. On the wire, there was only going forward, or going down. Rain looked down, afraid of losing his focus completely, but unable to stop himself from seeing what had been done to his rope. His rope had been taken away. Across the fifteen-foot gap above where the nets were withdrawn, the dangerous part of the walk, a single heavy steel wire extended. He had stepped, without seeing, from thick rope onto thin, slicing wire. Ahead, where the protective nets again began below, the wire rejoined treadable thickness of the rope. He would not be safe until he truly walked the wire. Tears were already slipping down his cheeks from the pain, but he would not stop. He could not stop. To stop now would mean death, or at very least a broken back. Another step, and the skin of his feet were separating, slipped down on a wet, bloody kiss around the wire. He lifted his right foot, feeling the skin sucking at the steel as he pulled it up and away, only to place it down again. He screamed and stepped, and cried, Oh my God, my God, and stepped. The audience was aware that something wasn't right, and the background noise grew in volume as people pointed and chattered, and a thousand voices whispered, Oh dear, oh my. He could feel the web between his second and third toes on his left foot give way with a painful tear, and he nearly fell again, wobbling off balance, arms akimbo, waving from side to side, but still his legs not stopping, not slowing. No. He put his right foot down bloody, shredded, and fire-hot to the razoring foot garot, and swore every curse he knew in a foul blue steam, no longer caring if the audience heard or saw his moment of weakness. Now it was life or death for him. 
This wasn't a performance. This was a survival test. This was punishment. At last, the filleted remnants of his right foot came down on what seemed to be a foot-wide support of rope, and he pulled his left forward to match. He'd made it. Whoever had done this, he'd beaten them. He'd survive. He looked down at the familiar surface, checking to see if more foot irritants lurked in the last third of his journey across the sky of the big top. The rope was free of exposed wire and golden tinsel. In their place was a new decoration. Every remaining foot of his walk was marked off with what looked like raven-smooth ribbons. Ribbons made of long, black twists of hair. The slippery, red blood of his foot was dripping down on the satiny locks of one curl, even now. Rain knew whose costume the golden tassels had been ripped and clipped from. And when he finally reached the platform at the end of his faltering walk, when he slumped down on his knees to cry and shake with relief on the plywood surface and saw the glass jar with a fist-sized bloody organ floating inside? Rain knew whose heart had been cut out. The doctor cleaned and stitched and dressed his feet and assured him that he would be able to walk the ropes again if he wanted to. Rain didn't ask about the new jar perched on a doctor's medicine shelf. The jar was something kidney-shaped floating inside. Back at his trailer, Aaron waited. They said you had some trouble on your walk today, she cooed, one eyebrow raised in an innocent question. Oh my, what happened to your feet? He'd set the crutches aside and collapsed on the bed next to her, where she kissed his forehead and stroked his hair. My poor baby, she said. Do you want to talk about it? Rain shivered and shook his head. I don't think so. Some, some things just can't be said. She stood up, shaking her head in agreement. I'm glad you think so. I feel the same way. She walked over to her shelves and pulled a jar from the top. Your mother gave me this today, she said, holding it in front of her, as if to catch the light to see something hidden inside. She asked me what I thought about adding it to the display of two-headed calves and conjoined twins and all the rest of the twisted mutants they have jarred up over there in the freak show. I told her I thought so, but I said I'd ask you. What do you think? Rain took the proffered jar and stared deep within its yellow formaldehyde waters. Inside, a tiny tom thumb floated, umbilical waving like a wrinkled, severed worm. Its eyes, barely the size of pinheads, were black and open. Despite its size, Rain could make out every finger and every toe. It was perfect. Some things just can't be said, she murmured, and some things just shouldn't be born. Rain could see a tiny drop of blood hanging like smog near the tiny cord, drifting in the preservative solution. He choked and nearly dropped the glass. Aaron rescued it from him and flashed a sad, weary smile. So, what do you think? I think it's going to be hard to walk for a while, he said. Yeah, she answered. Yeah, it looks that way. But you've got me to take care of you. We'll all take care of you. She paused and met his gaze, her eyes hard. We're all family, remember? The circus takes care of its own. Then she took the tiny child and left the tent, leaving Ryan to cry in deep, empty sobs over the loss of his son and his lover as he stared into the other jar left behind on Aaron's traveling shelves. Rain stared for hours into the deep, brown, floating eyes of Melinda, who would never see again. That was John Everson's After the Fifth Step, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the avatar for a three-kilometer sentient starship that is parked, probably uncomfortably, close to the third planet. 
Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. He is a very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology that he can communicate in this limited fashion. Any communications can be directed to www.theboojum.org. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Seth. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.